All right, we'll go back to the book of Romans. Put it all back together. See if we can advance it a little bit. Romans chapter 1. All right, remember we were in Romans chapter 1. We covered verses 1 and 2. Uh, we interpreted verse 1 based off Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16 tells us about the power of the gospel. Verse 1, Paul introduces himself as the author. He does so by giving, uh, identifying himself four different ways. We said those four ways showed us the power of the gospel, right? Everybody got that? At the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about being separated unto the gospel. That introduced the theme of the book, which is the gospel. So we talked about the word euangelion, right? The Greek word behind the word gospel. Then we talked about, so the gospel, the subject introduced, and then we had the subject promised in verse 2, which is the idea of the gospel being promised in the Old Testament, which then we ended up taking a hard right turn to deal with a big hermeneutical issue and how to understand how New Testament writers use Old Testament passage of scripture, right? We needed to go on to verse 3, which would be the person of the gospel, the, the person of the subject, and that he's described in verse 3, obviously Jesus Christ. However, we stopped because of things happening in the culture, which is some controversial sermons dealing with the subject of homosexuality, which were taken from Romans chapter 1. So, and the section which everyone turns to when they want to preach on homosexuality or if they want to make an art, biblical argument, they go to Romans chapter 1. And what verses do they jump to? Yeah, they go from 18 to 32, but the specific verses are... Twenty-six, twenty-seven. right? Everybody got that? Okay, so they jumped to that, and my, my concern was, okay, wait a minute. Um, instead of just jumping to those verses, what we need to do is have a very firm understanding of the text from Romans 1, verse 18 and following, and try to determine exactly what is being said and what is not being said. So we started working on it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, what subject is introduced? God's wrath, okay? And we talked about the, the word wrath. Remember, we talked about the word wrath. I'm not going to go into everything we, we talked you know, there. I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. We talked about uh, God's wrath. Then we, then we said that in verse 18, there was a number of things that we learned about God's wrath. Number one, it is of God. Number two, it is revealed. Where is it revealed? In his word, in the cross, moral order, direct personal intervention or involvement. All right. Then the third thing we learn about God's wrath in verse 18. It is revealed from heaven. It is revealed from heaven, demonstrating heaven's dominance or superiority over the earth. Okay. Next. All right, it is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We, we made an argument, I don't think everyone would agree, but I think here I think I have everyone in agreement, that I don't think these are just being used as synonyms, like, hey, just against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, but it's using to distinguish something. Ungodliness, we, we argue, deals with attitude, a lack of reverence to God, an ungodly attitude, and ungodliness deals with, or unrighteousness deals with, Action. All right. So God is revealing his wrath against both. Now, here comes. Now, I, I skipped it this morning. It was a complete accident. But um, I'll go back to it this evening. So we'll add to this. All right. At the end of verse 18, we have this uh, idea. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. King James has comma who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Right? Everybody see that? Now, I'm going to, and, and you can tell me whether you agree or not agree, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and I, I, I'm gonna, we could say a third thing. We, we, some could try to argue that it's a third thing, who hold the truth in unrighteousness is a third kind of category in which his wrath is revealed, but it seems to be a, dis, 
a summary of the ungodly and the unrighteous. So ungodly and unrighteous people do what? Hold the truth in unrighteousness. So God's, so it's a descriptive term, right? Describing the character of the ungodly and the unrighteous. I like part of me wants to say God's wrath is revealed against ungodly, unrighteous, and those who hold the truth because that makes for a good outline, right? Okay. But I think it's more of ungodly, unrighteous people do what? Hold the truth and unrighteousness. So I think it would just kind of go along with that thing. Now, when it says hold the truth and unrighteousness, what do we mean by hold the truth and unrighteousness? Suppress, hold down, okay. Um, The word here, let me go back up to it. Um, Hold the truth. Uh, this this phrase I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna try to mispronounce the Greek word, but it basically is used this way: to hold back, detain, retain, um, restrain, hinder, uh, to hold fast, to get possession of, take or to possess. All right. So some gets the idea that it's like, like the idea here: they have the truth and they hold on to it. Right? It does carry that idea, like they have this truth, they're holding on to it, but they're doing so in what way? In an unrighteous way. Now, it, 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 leads, it leads lots of questions because, well, wait a minute, what truth, are they, what truth are they holding on to? Verse 18 doesn't define the truth, right? Agreed? Now, this morning, we, I think we now can uh, define what that truth is. So see, it was all part of my original plan. Go to verse 19 and back up to 18 because it would make more sense. See, it, actually it wasn't. I com- just completely messed up. But all right, here we go. I, mean, I can sound like it, that it was a plan. Verse 19, it tells us, and in fact, verse 19 doesn't give us a complete clue. But when we get into verse 19 and 20, before we review it this morning, that the idea is something that can be known of God. There is a truth about God that can be known. Everybody got that? That, to me, would make sense that the truth that they're holding on to unrighteously is the truth given to them by God. Right? The truth about God. They're holding on to that in an unrighteous way. And that holding on to, I I think it can carry two ideas, right? It would be like, if I give a Bible, right? To, we'll just use Joel because Joel don't, seems to get too sensitive when I make fun of him. All right, if I give the Bible to Joel, right, ungodly, unrighteous, he would be holding the Bible, and because he's ungodly and unrighteous, he would hold the Bible. Well, what, how does the end of verse 18 states it? And unrighteousness. He would hold it unrighteousness. He would have the truth of God's word, but he would hold on to it, possess it, in an unrighteous way. The handling of that truth would be done in an unrighteous way, in an ungodly way. Does that make sense? It can also carry the idea of trying to give him the word, or if you give him the word, suppressing it or pushing down, pushing back to what it says. Does that make sense? I think there's two ideas. It's like they possess the truth because it's, been, it's revealed to them. So they possess it in an unrighteous way, but they also try to suppress it. I think it carries both ideas. Does that make sense? I know the NIV has the suppressed part, but if you look at the meaning of the Greek word, that carries a lot of different ideas, does it not? Let me go through them all again. Um, to hold back, detain, Retain, right, from going away to restrain, to hinder the course or progress of that which hinders, all right, it's used to that which hinders the Antichrist from making his appearance. That's how they have it, all right. That can be restraining something in a good way or it can be restraining something in a bad way. To check a ship's headway. All right, that's interesting. To hold fast, keep secure, or keep firm possession of. So, so it's really a, a number of ideas there. I, so I think the best way to say this is this. Ungodly, unrighteous people. God's wrath 
is revealed against them, right? It's manifest from heaven against them, right? And these are the people who have God's truth, but they hold it in an unrighteous way, and that involves suppressing it, and I will even argue maybe using that truth in an unrighteous way, which is going to make sense as, you go, as we go through the rest of Romans. They've got God's truth, but it's going to be met. They're going to use it in an ungodly way. Does that make some sense? Yes? All right. So that kind of, that kind of takes care of 18, hopefully in a good way. Now, 19, remember, started with the word because. And what, so what happened? 18 introduced us the wrath of God. And then what did 19? What did we say 19 does? It's the reason for this wrath, right? All right, and what, and if I, I got to skip ahead here. The reasons for God's wrath is, number one, what's the first reason for God's wrath? What, what may be known of God. There is something that can be known of God that's resulting in God's wrath. Remember, that's all from this morning, all right? What may be known of God. Everybody see it in verse 19? Because that which may be... Of God, right? My, remember, my outlines are never clever, right? Which may be known of God, right? So, it connects it. And, and note this very, this is very important. Which may be known of God is manifest in them. And we spent all morning focusing on this idea. Remember, not everyone believes the end should be translated as in, but it should be translated around. I make an argument that I believe it. Uh, in fact, the Greek word is translated in, what, well over a thousand times, we said? Yeah, 1,900 times, some crazy number. So, here's the idea. God's wrath is going against the ungodly, the unrighteous. Those who hold God's truth in an unrighteous way, because that's the character of the ungodly and the unrighteous. That's the natural character of man. This is, this is describing the natural state of... Of, of men. This is not referring to homosexuals specifically. This was referring to the human race. We're all ungodly. We're all unrighteous. And we all hold tr- God's truth in an unrighteous way. That makes sense? Okay. So why, why is God manifesting this against these people? Why? Well, the reason why is because there is something that may be known of God that has been manifest. And what did we say this morning? In them. And how did we, and we, we talked about the different ways it's manifested in them, right? We're not going to go through all of them. You've got them, we got it in the sermon this morning. So, what we refer to that as the internal witness. They have an internal witness that screams, there is a God. Internally, they know it. Internally, they know there is a God. Right? But, The text goes on in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, to say what else? Not only is it manifest in them, God hath shewed it unto them. All right, everybody see that? That means he is not, not only is there an internal witness, what else is there? An external witness. An external witness. So this leads to the next question. All right, or the next reason for God, you know, we, we, we're, we're kinda, we've kind of broken this down, reasons for God's wrath, number one, because something can be known. And number two, the second reason is because of what is shown. The second reason God has poured out his wrath is because of what is shown. If something has been shown unto them, or shoot unto them, the way the King James puts it, then what's the, what's the obvious question every Bible student should have? Or what? What? What is shown? What, what has been shown? Right? And I think we can find our answer really quick. Can we not? Verse 20. For the invisible things of him. Now, who's the him? God. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And we'll stop right there. So, what is being shown, this is very clear, 
What is being shown is something external is showing them, us, everyone, something about God. There's something external that shows everyone the truth of God. And what is that external thing? Creation. Because it's been the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Right? By the things that are made, they demonstrate there is a God. It is clearly seen. Right? Now, we can go to two very important texts to get this. Um, for cross-reference, go to uh, Psalm chapter 19. Everyone should know this one. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. Everybody there? Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. Every day... Creation is speaking every night. It is showing or showing forth knowledge. Every day creation speaks. Every night it is showing knowledge. It never stops. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Doesn't matter if they live in some remote part of the world who's never come in contact with civilized man, this speech is heard. Doesn't matter if they are a teenager. Doesn't matter if they're an adult. Doesn't matter if they have a high IQ or a low IQ. The speech can be heard. Right? Right? And we can continue to read, but you get the idea. And he's referring to what? The creation of... The creation screams it. Right? One other passage, I believe it's in Acts. Let me look real quick. Acts, I think it's chapter 14. Yeah, Acts chapter 14. All right. Um, all these people start referring to uh, Paul and Barnabas like uh, they are some kind of uh, a god of some kind. And look at verse 14 and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. They're like, hey, don't worship us. Worship God. The creator. And then what does he say? Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself. Verse 17. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. And that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God did not leave himself without a witness. There is a witness that is witnessing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never stops. It never is never silent. It is screaming constantly, hey, here's what you need to know. It is revealing something. All right? So, uh, why is God demonstrating his wrath? Because there is something that can be known, right? That is manifested unto them. And because of what is shown. And what is shown is not only is it in them, it is all around you. And what can we learn from what is shown? What is revealed by what is shown? Well, look at verse 20. No, in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1. 
What two things can be uh, seen in this uh, revelation and creation? There are two things. Right? Eternal power, okay? And Godhead is how the King James puts it. Eternal power and Godhead. Some Bibles have eternal power and divine nature. God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen in the creation. So let me read it again. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even so, his eternal power and Godhead or divine nature. All right? It is seen. Those two things are seen. What does God show them? The creation. What can be seen in that creation? Eternal power and, and divine nature. All right. Um, let's. Uh, I'll read uh, from uh, this commentary because I think this is uh, interesting here. Uh, next, Paul specifies the content of the revelation of himself that God makes known to all mankind. Since the creation of the world, he declares God has made his invisible attributes visible. The particular attributes that man can perceive in part through his natural senses are God's eternal power and his divine nature. God's eternal power refers to his never-failing omnipotence, which is reflected in the awesome creation which that power both brought into being and sustains. God's divine nature of kindness and graciousness is reflected, as Paul told them in Acts 14, 17, the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. We already read Acts 14, 17. So so his power and his divine nature are witnessed in creation. All right? Those are seen in creation. Now that... That is a powerful statement, right? Because that is demonstrating that the reason God is so upset, there's something to be seen, and he's made it manifest in them and around them, and what has he shown them? Creation, which reveals his power and his divine nature. Now, they have an interesting quote here from um, Charles Hodge, famous theologian, but we won't get into everything about Charles Hodge. Okay, uh, Charles Hodge, and this is, and I'll quote from him. This is from his commentary on the epistle to the Romans. So this commentary is quoting from Charles, Charles Hodge commentary. I'm glad they at least identify when they're quoting from Hodge here, right? God, therefore, has never left himself without a witness. His existence and perfections have ever been so manifested that his Rational creatures are bound to acknowledge and worship him as the true and only God. God has never left himself without a witness. There has always been a witness. All right, so what do we have so far? All right, we have a discussion about God's wrath. Everybody, amen? All right, we, um, we have reasons for God's wrath. And what are the two reasons God is so upset? Because what may be known, right, okay, is manifested. And number two, because what is shown, what is shown, something is, something, something can be known. Like, in other words, they can't say, well, I just don't know. No, something can be known. It's manifested in them and to them. And what is shown is so clear, right? Creation is so clear that no one can say they don't know of God's divine power and his divine nature. Now that's a, you do not understand what kind of like, that comes across as an arrogant, arrogant, arrogant declaration. All right? If we were in a philosophy class, World War XII would break out right here. Okay, they would not appreciate this. All right, but this is the Christian teaching and there's no way to play it down. There's no way to play it down. So here's the thing. When you have people who seem to care less about the things of God, 
They're obviously ungodly, unrighteous, and they're holding God's truth unrighteously. Right? If they, if, if you, if you, especially, and I'll, I'll use young people, but even, you know, anybody, young, young people, old people, anybody, when they just don't care, something's wrong. Because they, they, they're bombarded. Every time they walk outside, if they don't get it, something's wrong. It's like, it's like uh, you, you, you have a dog, right? Okay? And I have, you know, one of some of the great, you know, great works of literature. It could be Shakespeare, anything. Great works of philosophy. And I can get down on my knee, look at my dog, Connor, and say, Hey, Connor, look, man, look at this. Look at this amazing book. He's like, does he care? Does he perceive anything about it? That's how, there's some people that way. There's some young people like that. Hey, hey, let's talk about God. No, no, I'd rather do this. Don't care. There's some adults who don't care. Why not? Something, that, that's, that's something is wrong spiritually. That's a sign something is wrong spiritually. Because you sh- whenever we, we're bombarded with God, the truth of God screaming at us, we should be consumed with thoughts about that. But we're not because something is happening. So you see why God is upset. Now please note, this is about everyone. We ha- I cannot stress this enough. This is about everyone. Romans 1, 18, 19, and 20. Is anything about homosexuals being mentioned yet? So here's the hermeneutical question you have to ask yourself. How do we get from God's wrath being revealed against ungodliness, unrighteousness, and that the description of those kinds of people are people who hold his truth and unrighteousness, the reason God is upset is because, well, he made something known. He sh- showed it unto them. And two, because of what he showed to them. And what he showed to them is, d- reveals his power and divine nature. Because of all of that, God is upset. That's everyone. How do we get to mankind to Romans chapter 1 is about homosexuals. How do we get there? Well, we get there, on number one, because we don't like to look at anything that may apply to all of us. Because you can say, well, I'm a Christian. This ungodliness and this unrighteousness has nothing to do with me. Oh, but it does because your nature is ungodly. Right? Ungodliness and unrighteousness has something to do with you. And guess what we have a tendency to do? Do we not sometimes suppress God's truth? Do we not sometimes hold it in unrighteousness or use it in an unrighteous way? We've all done that, right? So this, so we can feel the weight of this as well. And God doesn't like it when anybody does it. Now, so th- this is very important. It is a st- one thing that's established, so far this is what's been established. God is a God of wrath. We know what he's upset about. But it's established the fact that everyone has truth. Now, here's the, next, here's the next point in our outline. What is man's response? What is man's response to this truth? What word does verse 21 begin with? Because. Now, what's, they're still, what do they want us to understand? Why God is so upset? Paul was, God is, is, his wrath is being manifested. Why is God so upset? Well, I think we're going to get a good idea because of man's response to the truth that he has provided. He's provided everyone truth. All right? Now, I know trying to work through this, it's not, it's hard to outline this in a clear way. I know I could probably do it a little better, but I'm trying to have you just follow the flow of the, law, of the argument instead of just separating it from the flow and go, here's three points. I'm trying to make us logically flow through it. Does that make sense? I could rip it out, out and say, here's three points and just reference the verse, but I want you to feel the logical flow of thought. And here's the reason I'm stressing this so much. If we don't pick up the logical flow of thought, when we get to the verses of homosexuality, what will we do? Give me four points about homosexuality, point to verse 26 or whatever, 
No, we've got to follow the logical flow of thought that begins in 18. Does that make sense? So I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not just giving us like, okay, tonight, today we're going to, you know, this is how I could do it. I'm going to preach Romans 1, 18 through 20, right? Read Romans 1, 18 through 20. Step back, give you a nice organized three points in my outline and simply make a reference to there's the point in 18, but I want you to feel the flow of this, of this discussion. Does that make sense? Because if we don't pick up the flow of the thought, when we get to homosexuality, we'll rip it out of the context. And that seems, when I've listened to so many sermons about this, this is what occurs, which destroys everything. All right? So, we've got God's wrath. We have a reason for God's wrath, right? And now we have man's response to the truth that has been revealed. And what is this response? Look at verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, stop right there. Now, before we get to how man's response, this is key. What does verse 21 scream? Verse 21 is screaming something at you right there. It's so loud that you probably have to plug your ears. Okay. Everyone knows God. Although they knew God. We, all of creation knows God. All people know God. If you know someone who claims to be an atheist or an agnostic, they're not. They know God. Intellectually, they may claim to be an atheist or an agnostic, but deep down, the Bible says, you know God. You know You know internally, and you know externally. You know it's there, and you can fight against it and argue all day, but at some point, there's no point arguing with you. If you can argue with creation, there's no point in arguing with me. And clearly, with the the entrenched understanding of evolution, now the best argument that we're, we're supposed to have from a evangelistic point of view is how do I, I know there's a God, look outside, but now they're just like, evolution put it there. And so now you don't even, like that's so frustrating that now now you can't even like, like there was a time that people would be like, you know, whoa. You know, that's a good point. But now they're like, nope, evolution, evolution, evolution. It's just like go to, like everyone's a science expert now. Everyone's scientifically, you know, qualified. If you've ever, if you, if you want to just see how bad it is in 2019, find the uh, Twitter feed for Answers in Genesis. Okay? Just find the Twitter feed for Answers in Genesis. Just spend five minutes. Every post they make it's not responded to by Christians. They make a post, and within 10 seconds, it's non-believers saying, bunch of garbage, bunch of garbage, a lie. Mocking, condescending, cussing, vile filth against, against it. Because they don't... And, and, and sometimes you just want to go... Um, you guys just want to hang out on the Answers in Genesis Twitter feed? Like, you know, like... Lost people, you don't have anything better. Why are you even following the answers in Genesis Twitter feed? Like, why, why are you even following it? Like, like, at this point, it doesn't even make sense for, for answers in Genesis to even have a Twitter feed. Doesn't even make any sense. Because clearly Christians are afraid to post anything because they know they're going to get absolutely destroyed. But the point is, is now, like, creation, no! Creation did not come from God. Nothing Plus, no one equals everything. We all just evolved. Okay, so that's frustrating, right? But evolution is a, a it's, it can't, even though it's, it, and again, we have, we, I'll make sure I make this very clear because I'll have some Christians listen to this and misinterpret me. I, once again, I believe every Christian should not be afraid of studying evolutionary science. I think if a kid goes to a college and the professor teaches evolutionary science, that's not the place to have your battle and have your fight. If you have to write a paper, 
from an evolutionary point of view, just write the paper. Your job is to learn the, the system, right? You don't have to believe it, and you've got to pick your battles. You're not going to win a battle against a professor in the middle of a classroom. It's just foolish. It's, you're not going to win that battle. I, like, I don't know why when people do it to a pastor when the pastor is speaking. I don't know why a student would do it to a, a professor. The professor is going to get the last word, okay? So just stop arguing, okay? You know, learn it, and, and then you can have a, a meaningful conversation after. And you can approach it, hey... I'm going to write a paper from a Christian perspective. But if you do so, guess what? You're in a science class, right? So you probably don't want to write a theology paper and then complain that the professor was mean to you and persecuted you because of your Christianity. No, if you wrote a theology paper for a science class, you probably deserve a zero. In fact, I, I, no, you do deserve a zero. Right? It'd be like writing a theology class for a home ex paper, right? No, you write the subject. Now, if you want to make a scientific argument against a concept, right? You take a certain aspect of science, right? You want to talk about a certain fossil, depending on the type of science class you're on, something from a biological perspective, and you want to make a scientific argument, you go to your professor and say, I want to write the paper on this, the, pe- the professor may say yes, the professor may say no, right? The professor says no, you write the paper. But if he, if he says yes, then guess what? What you must demonstrate, that your knowledge of that science is flawless. Don't go, I got persecuted, I got persecuted. You got persecuted because your paper was horrible and you should demonstrate that you didn't take notes in science class. That's not your Christianity that's because you deserve to be persecuted because you didn't know what you're supposed to know. But the Christians love to play the victim in those situations. Learn the science and then make a scientific argument. But it's just crazy that we live in a culture now where the, our argument about creation is useless. I mean, we're la- I mean, Christians are just, like, to even now argue against evolution, evolution is now viewed in society not as a theory, but as absolute scientific fact that cannot be, que- it's dogma. And so it, it makes it hard. Like it, now, if you're just witnessing to you know someone who's you know barely graduated high school science, you may not have much of a problem with it. But if you're dealing with someone who's educated, and you're like, well, creation proves there's a God. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, and you're going to tell me there was a boat that saved the whole world, and there was a talking snake. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. your mythology is really going to convince me. I'll stick with science. You believe in fairy tales, talking donkeys and talking snakes, and yeah, okay, whatever. Like, that's how they're going to view it. So the thing is, you have to understand that you can argue all day, right? But you've got to realize at some point, There's no point in arguing because they're fighting against themselves. The Bible teaches they know God. They know God. It's a battle. They're they're, they're fighting. They're fighting with something inherently they know. And typically... When you continue to fight against something you know internally, usually it just makes your life worse. Right? It's like, like the culture is always about being honest with yourself. Being honest with yourself. Well, be honest with yourself. And deep down you know there's something. And so sometimes the fight has to be... And I think that's why atheists have moved away from fighting. Because now they're just like, just don't care. Who cares? Who cares? If, I'm not even going to b- bother with the question. They, they just want to tune out the whole discussion. Because, they don't, because the more they contemplate, there is no God, there is no God, th- that, that internal thing is fighting with them. They know God. That is a, that is a massive claim the Bible is making. And I, I know non-Christians will disagree with it, but I mean, it's right there. Because that when they knew God, they have an inherent knowledge. Yeah, because the question should be, when did they know God? They knew God because of what? That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them, for the invisible things. How, how, when did they know God? They know God inside, and they know God internal witness and external witness. That's when. Now, what is their reaction to this knowledge? All right? What's the first reaction they have? They glorified him not. 
that glorified him not. Everybody see that in verse, is that 21? Right? Because when they knew God, they glorified him not. Now, what does that mean, glorified him not? What does it mean to glorify him not? Okay. Now, you're using the same word. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, this is the way I have it written down in my notes. Okay, I glorified him not, and then I put a, a straight a line, did not honor him. All right, so I think there's two ideas. There was a failure to recognize him, as the NIV seems to imply. They would not recognize him as God or recognize a God. And there was a failure to uh, to assign or, or, or give him, uh, to see him as supreme or worthy of honor. They would not recognize, I'm not recognizing there's a God. There isn't a God. Or I don't know there's a God. And if you're going to say, I don't know if there's a God, or if I'm going to say there is no God, then guess what you're doing? You're not going to recognize or glorify him as being God. And let me make it very clear. We, we got three young people here, so I'll just be very blunt to all three young people. Just because you raised in a Christian home and claim to be Christian doesn't mean anything. You either acknowledge him as God and glorify him as God, or this is describing you. Right? And that's the same for all the adults in the room. All right? This, this is the idea that... I. I I'm not going to glorify him. I'm not going to acknowledge him. I'm just going to live my life as if God doesn't exist. And if you're glorifying him, I mean, I mean, I want to make sure you understand this. The minute people respond to God's truth that way, please understand there something something psychological begins to happen. All right. Here's the reason why. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Catechism, the Puritan Catechism, I think the London Baptist Catechism does the same thing. I think pretty much all early catechisms do the same thing. What is the entire purpose of your existence? Your entire purpose is to glorify God. When you do not live a life of glorifying God, you're, you, well, one, you're, dim- you're, you're pushing back on the very truth that's been revealed to you because this creation itself is to glorify God. You're a part of that creation. You're literally fighting against the very reason you exist. And I will say that many Christians live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday only worried about themselves. Very little like, what would you have me to do? I did an entire devotional on that. What will you have me to do? I did that this week. What will you have me to do? That's the words Paul, those are the very first words Paul said after his conversion. What will you have me to do, Lord? That's, that's the response of salvation. What will you have me to do? Not, I'm going to wake up today and do this, 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 this. No, what would God have you to do? Right? To glorify Him. Now, I want to make sure you understand this. I'm, I'm, going to make a, I'm going to make a very, very important argument here. Once a person has this internal truth, which everyone does, and then they push back, and I'm not going to glorify God or acknowledge him as God. It's more, it's not just a pure atheism. It has pure atheism in it, but it's just not, I'm just not going to glorify him. I'm not, not going to acknowledge him. I'm just going to live my life my way. It starts something that this passage is going to show you. A, it's a, it's a de-evolution it's a de-evolutionary process. Instead of an evolutionary process where you go from simple and move up, this is a downward spiral, spiral that occurs. That's where we, you're gonna, we, need to have, we have to follow this because this is the whole argument Paul's going to make. If you don't follow the downward spiral, right, you're not, when we get to the homosexuality part, the homosexuality part is a part of this downward spiral. Does that make sense? All right. So, 
They glorified him not. What's the second thing they do? Neither were thankful. Now, I want you to stop right here. Okay, this, this is disturbing to me. And here's the reason it's disturbing. This is supposedly describing the unregenerate lost world. Christians not giving God glory in everything they do and living a life for God's glory, I think is far more common than anybody in this room wants to acknowledge. And not, not being thankful. Not being thankful is not, well, when, before I eat, I say grace. Okay, that's, that's, we're not just talking about you follow some ritual. It's an, an overall attitude. It's a cliche. An attitude of gratitude. Okay, yeah, someone's heard the sermons. Okay, yeah, okay. We've all heard their sermons. They've been preached a million times. An attitude of gratitude. Now, it's a cliche, but it's a good one because that means our whole attitude must be one of gratitude. And why? Well, let me just give you one scripture. Give you one. I can give you two. But go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Right? There's a, lot, uh, there's a lot here that we could look at, but I'll just look at this one. Um, that you may be uh, the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. What is that? Why, is that such, why is that so important? God's goodness is shown daily to the just and the unjust. We should be eternally... Think, so on one hand, who should be grateful to God? According to Romans, everyone, right? Because it rains on the just and the unjust, but they don't acknowledge God is the source of those things. They don't acknowledge God is the source of their breath. They don't acknowledge God is the source of their next heartbeat. They don't acknowledge that God is the source of their life. They don't acknowledge God in anything. And let me say, we're all here. We are guilty of the exact same thing. That's why the liturgy of the hours. The liturgy of the hours. How does it begin? When you with the first words out of your mouth. Lord, open my mouth. And I will declare your praise. I'm paraphrasing, okay? That's the first thing you speak. Before you speak, open my mouth so that my lips can uh, proclaim your praise, right? And then, it usually, I believe it's, I'd have to look at my liturgy of the hours. I believe the very first psalm, if you go to the, what's called the introductory psalm, sometimes, you, depending on when you do the liturgy hours, you don't always do the introductory. I believe it's Psalm 95. And the very first words is, Lord, open my mouth so my mouth can uh, you know, declare your praise. And then immediately you read a psalm of praise. That's the way the early church said, like, before you speak, before you say anything to anyone, you praise God. Why? Your existence is because of God. Your breath your life, your sustenance comes from God. And we all, we all live as if that's not the case. Everyone in this room is guilty of it. Including myself. We're all guilty of it. I'm putting us all together. So it's kind of convicting that here's Paul going after the lost world. Hey, you don't glorify God and you don't give, you know, thanks. And I'm kind of like, well... <laughs> But why are we, why do we find ourselves in the same camp? Because we have the same nature. Right? Remember, that's the whole thing about the Pelagian, the whole discussion of Pelagianism, right? Remember, I told you Pelagian Romans are going to be coming to end. We have the same nature, so we do the same things. So they don't give him any thanks. Why? Because they don't see him as the source, they don't see him as everything. What's the third way they respond? They became vain in their imaginations. Let's read this all together, all right? 
this is how this is how the people respond to God's truth. This is why God is demonstrating his wrath. Right? He's shown them so much. There was something to be known. He showed something, creation to them that demonstrated his his power and his divine nature. And how did people respond to the internal and external witness? They glorified him not. Number two, were not thankful. And number three, became vain in their imaginations. This will be the last one we look at. Vain in their imaginations. What do you think that means? All right, well, we all could probably have a pretty good understanding of the word vain, right? What does he think that means? What is the word vain? What do you think it means? Okay, what do you think? Foolish? What? Worthless? Meaningless? Empty? All right, would everyone agree that that's a pretty, are you looking it up, the, word, the Greek word for vain? Okay, well, Sarah's looking up the Greek word. I don't have it in front of me. It may be on my iPad, I don't know. There we go. Some Okay, empty, vain, foolish. We get the basic idea. And then imaginations. Is it has the NIV used imaginations or it use a different term? Well, that's the whole thing there. But their thinking became futile and their foolish Okay. So, their thinking, their imaginations is referring to their thinking becomes vain or foolish. Their inward reasoning. I love that. Their inward reasoning. Oh, you need to listen to where I'm going here, okay? You have to see this. This is setting everything up that's coming, right? That's why you cannot preach this without going to verse 8. If you are ever sitting in a church and they want to preach against homosexuality and they jump to Romans 1 and drop down there to verse 26, raise the hand and go, this sermon is invalid, unless you come in the middle of their series, right? Because we have to, this is setting this up. So, what happens? God has revealed something to everyone. They know God. How do they respond? Not glorifying Him. It's about me. They replace God with self. Right? They become, and they, they don't glorify Him. They're not thankful, because they will not acknowledge Him as What? As the source of all things, so they're not grateful, they're not thankful, and then that leads to number three, they become vain in their imaginations. Something happens to their inward reasoning. Something happens to the way they think. Now this is making a very bold Theological claim, and it's making a very bold philosophical claim. Right? This is very important. This is making the claim that your reason, the quality of your reason, is dependent upon your understanding of God. The quality of your reason is dependent dependent on your knowledge of God. Now, this is where the skeptical Trevor comes out. All right? And this is where I have a hard time with this passage. Because in my experience, the reasoning faculties of Christians are some of the most messed up reasoning faculties I have ever encountered in the history of mankind. Now, why is that? I don't know. This is making an argument. Why is their reasoning messed up? They're... They've suppressed the knowledge of God. They won't glorify God. They won't acknowledge God. And as a result, what has happened? Their thinking, their inner reason has become what? Foolish, vain, empty, broken. The quality of your reasoning is dependent on your knowledge of God. 
This is what I'm going now. Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I think, and how do I want to say this? I think the reason that so much reasoning faculties of Christians is so bad is because they pretend to know God, but in reality, they don't. Because how do you measure one's knowledge of God from a Christian point of view? We, we acknowledge there is the general knowledge that is provided inwardly and through creation. There's only one other way to measure knowledge, right? Everyone has the same general knowledge. No one gets more general knowledge. No one gets less general knowledge because it's inside of us and we all have creation, right? No more, no less. Agreed? So then when we become a Christian... How do we measure our knowledge of God? Yeah, I've got to answer it. I'm not going to give you the answer. No. That would measure our application of God's knowledge, of our knowledge of God. That's it. And for those listening online, I'm holding up my Bible. This is going to be the only way to know. You claim you know God? Let's sit down and let's discuss Scripture. Let's discuss it. Now, that's not, that's not even a 1,000% sure guarantee because you can know about Scripture and not know God. I understand that because I hear someone on, online will be screaming about, no, he's, you're misunderstanding. There's no other way to measure it, people. Right? It's not some like, do you have a barometer or do you have some kind of, you know, you know scale on side, you know, you get a, a beep on your phone going, oh, your knowledge of God, you've reached a 98% capacity. You know, it's going to be based off this. Because where, how, why do I say it's based off this? God has revealed himself generally in creation, but a special revelation is contained in 66 books. So you want to know why the faculty of so many Christians seem to be vain and foolish? Is because they're not studying this in any meaningful way. And it, 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 it's funny, today I bought a book, um, 40, 40 methods of Bible study. I was like, whoa, okay, I know 12, very good. 40? I got some to learn, right? Okay. I want to know why they do it. Four. I'm like, well, this guy. But what drove me crazy when I started when I started reading the book, I wanted to throw my iPad across the room. I was like, here we go again. It's gonna be the same thing. It, it sounds like I wrote the book. Every Christian should desire the scriptures. Every Christian should love to talk about the word of God. And I'm like, where where do you live, dude? Okay, because I, I would like to find where you know these Christians, okay? Right? And, and, and it's like, like what, what, and, then, and then it's the same thing. Reading is not studying. Like, I could, I could pull, well, the, the iPads back. And I'm like, wait, who, I want, who says that reading is not studying? I wonder who, 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 who? Okay, that's a wrestling thing. Okay, what? what? I say that all the time! I say that, I, and y'all will look at me literally like I'm, I read and that's good enough. I read, that's good enough. Well, that's not study. Why does every person who's ever written a book in the history of Christianity say, you have to do more than read the Bible? Like, I didn't create that idea because your knowledge of God is critical. And, this, and the whole point here is if your knowledge of God is wrong, your entire reasoning is shot. You can't reason. It becomes foolish. It becomes vain. It becomes broken. That's why I, when I was a young Christian, I was convinced of this. Christians should be the smartest people on the planet. Christians should have the best reasoning, the best logic. We should be best at it. And, then, and I'm like, well, okay, well, obviously that's not the case. Okay, that's... No, just go to the, I mean, if I go to a Christian bookstore and pick up any Christian book, I, get me to a secular bookstore as fast as I can. Find me some books written by anyone not. Now, if I go back and read the early Christians, 
Don't look, whoa. <laughs> now, they, they live in a time where they don't all have Bibles. They live in a time where they don't have any Bible tools. They live in a time where they can't just listen to a sermon whenever they want. They don't have the time to do all the things that we can do, and yet they're writing books, and you're like, I mean, I, 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 my little thing where I do the d- daily reading of the church fathers, and every day I'm just sitting there going, what? Now, Why? You, and and listen, you have in your possession and that little device you are holding, you have access to more knowledge than the church fathers could ever dream of. Why then do we not sound like the church fathers? Because they spent their life doing what? With whatever manuscript they could find or whatever they could have, they did what? Studied, meditated, and focused. That our reasoning should be solid. Our reasoning is not solid because we do not care to know this. Does that make sense? And when I say know it, just the last three weeks, right? Three weeks. Week, three weeks ago, our entire focus on the app was John 10. One verse in John 10. I asked uh, a number of questions about it. The second week was John 17. I asked a number of questions. This week, well, this week ended because today is a new day, uh, is new beginning of a new week. But uh, this last week was Ephesians 3.19, I said, what did I do? I recorded and said, okay, everyone, here's three questions. Three questions about Ephesians 3.19. Three questions. And I even say on every recording, I need the members of Victory Baptist Church. Give me those three answers. Let me know what you think. You can talk to me in email. You know my address. You can call me. Let's talk about these scriptures, right? Because that's getting you to do more than what? That's one verse, seven days. One verse. Now remember, I've tried all kinds of things to try to get y'all to study, and it doesn't happen. Well, if we're not going to dig into one verse like that, then what happens is then why do we even pretend that we have right reasoning? Because what determines the quality of your reasoning? And what happens here? They became vain in their imaginations. Why? Because they refuse the knowledge of God. This is how I have it written in my notes. To reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. To reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. The reality which gives the, that, which gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding to everything else. Let me read that again. To reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe, the reality which gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding to everything else. Knowledge of God determines your understanding of everything else. If if y'all have been in this church for any length of time, I have told everyone in this church nine billion times, read the first chapter of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. In fact, I've said I wouldn't ordain a person who had not read at least that chapter, right? Why? Because Calvin makes this very argument. You can't know yourself until you know God. You can't know the world until you know God. So know God. Then your understanding of yourself is correct and your understanding of the world is correct. They, in Romans 1, refuse God. Their thinking goes to garbage. And now we're going to see the downward progression that leads to every kind of insanity that you can think of. But it begins because no knowledge of God. And when you have Christians whose understanding seems vain and confused and broken, where does it begin? Knowledge of God. That's why what was the highest academic pursuit anyone could undertake for a long time? Theology. And what was the next? Philosophy. Why do you start with theology? Because you can't understand anything 
till you know God. So the quality of your reasoning is based off this. But we're going to see what happens when a world refuses God. It, it's, just, it's not just the world. It's just not a culture. It's human beings. And what Romans is going to describe, and my, this, is my, this is my interpretation. I think Romans 1 is going to give you the interpretation of history. Man rejects God, and then all of these things become evident when people reject God, which includes homosexuality. Now, I know there's a part there in Romans, Romans 1, verse 26 or fall, that they believe places homosexuals in a different category. I understand that. But if it places them in a different category, you know how they end up there? Because they reject the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Does that make sense? Because, they, because they, uh, it's not even just a matter of like, I don't want God. They're trying, to, they're trying to fight against the knowledge of God. Does that make sense? That's what they're trying to push back on. right? Because they, they know God, but they're trying to fight against it. right? He's not even really talking about an acceptance or a rejection. It's more like this knowledge. I don't want this knowledge. I, I get this knowledge away from me. You know, I'm not going I'm I'm to live, live in denial of what is real. Does that make sense? Like what, what Romans is saying, it's so obvious that they're living in utter denial of what is so plain, and because you're denying what is so plain, the consequences are obvious. Does that make sense? Okay, I, th- I think that's the way we're going to go. All right, but we have. To, but you see, I'm trying. I just think that when you look at what they do to it, we we all feel a little convicted there, right? We all don't glorify God. We're not always thankful. And our reasoning gets messed up. And I think the reason our reason gets messed up is it's based off our knowledge of God. Does that make sense? And for the Christian, that's more than just a response to the general revelation. It has everything to do with our understanding of special revelation. And we are the ones who believe that that's his revelation. We should be the smartest people on the planet. But it doesn't always show up. All right, let's, we got to stop right there. There's so much more I would like to say, but... We need like 18 more hours. Sorry, let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this evening. Lord, these are very important concepts. These concepts apply to our world. But I don't want to become so focused on, look at how messed up those bad people in the world are. There's some convicting points for us as well. And I want to try to apply this in a way that is that we don't just point our finger at everyone, but we also look in the mirror. Because there's a lot here to consider about ourselves. And I pray that we would do just that. But Lord, this is a wake-up call to everyone in this room about what's happening in the world around them. What's happening in the world around them is following exactly what is going on here in Romans 1, and it's been true of all of human history. We're just watching it in uh, in our own time happening in its own way, and I pray that we would understand this and try to figure out how we are to respond to it according to uh, the book of Romans. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said. you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.